On the 18th of November, uh, 1879, someone you may have heard of called Ethelbert W. Bullinger um, gave a talk at Walthamstow Church Sunday School Association. Uh, and this talk was written up in April 1880, and it's a good read. It's entitled, The Importance of Accuracy in the Study of Holy Scripture. And Bullinger was, is famous for the Companion Bible, as, as you probably uh, recognize, and he's a doctor of divinity. And I don't normally make too much of a habit of quoting from them, but here's a very short quote. And I think it kind of sums up some of the things that we've been considering this weekend. And, and it's very simple, but it's also very profound. He says this, in fact, we may divide people into two great classes with regard to their treatment of the Bible. Number one, those who put the Bible above everything. And number two, those who put something above the Bible. And that's what I think we've been considering this weekend, haven't we? That that we are of those, the former class, who put the Bible above everything, or that's what we should do. The, the, the thoughts of man, the writings of man, the ideas of science, every, everything at all that, that, that it is outside of the word of God is subservient to it. The Bible should be above everything. And we make a big mistake, and we upset the Almighty, I think, if we put something above the Bible. So what we're hoping to do this evening is just to base our remarks wholly on the scriptures and to look at what God has said about issues around marriage and sexual relations and, and to, to just look beyond that to the time when, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be in the earth again. That will be a very short part of the talk, but, but it's something that um, we want to finish on. So what we'd like to do is make a start in John chapter 17. And you probably recognize that that quotation that they all may be one is taken from John chapter 17. And we'd like to look at a few verses in, in that chapter. We, we wonder at the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he knew what was ahead of him. He knew that in a very short time, he would be faced with a betrayer, and a crowd of people who would come to take him. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to form so much injustice and mocking and scourging and cruelty. And yet here he is praying to his heavenly father. And one of the prime focuses is on others. And in verse eight, he says, for I have given unto them, these are the disciples, the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So Jesus is saying that he had given them the words that his father had given him, that he passed them on. And as a result of that, they were convinced that, that he was the Messiah. He was the one who was to come. He was the one who would sit upon the throne of David. He was the greater son of David. 
And then in verse 11, still speaking of his disciples, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And so that was his desire, wasn't it? That just as he was one with his father, so the disciples, those who'd shared and continued his, within all that, those three years in his temptations, that they may be one too. But, but beyond that, in verse 20, he says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. And so on that same process of the word spoken, that the disciples would, having had the word spoken to them, pass that word then on to others and that they would become the believers. And ultimately, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And so ultimately the purpose of Almighty God is expressed here in the Lord Jesus Christ in his prayer to God was that one day the whole world would recognise the oneness of Christ and his bride. And so that makes us think right back to Genesis chapter 2, which has been quoted already a few times, and to look at marriage as a divine institution. And we needn't go back there because we're so familiar with those words, but you'd probably be fully aware that on day six, there was the creation of woman, the creation of man and then the formation of woman. And Adam spoke these words, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And so that idea of oneness that Jesus was praying about was was made known way, way back on day six at the time of creation. That here was God's purpose declared that there would be a marriage that would take place. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when faced with questions from the Pharisees, said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. And then he adds what God hath joined together and, and this is a very interesting quotation, isn't it? Because what we find from, from both Genesis and Matthew, when we put these things together, we get a picture of what marriage really is. And so let's just analyse and try and break this down. The first thing that comes very clearly out of these words is that there is a public act, there's a leaving of home, there's a change of abode from the man who leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife. It's something which is out in the open. It's something which people are aware of, people know. And as a result of that, the man and the woman are together, legitimately together, and they form a union, a one flesh union of male and of female. And that this is something by God's design. It's a divine institution. God has done it. God has created the process by which 
legitimately a man and a woman can come together. It is God that hath joined together. And the, the fact that no one else is, is included in this uh, shows that others are to be excluded from, from that process. So when we think about what God has done, we take it just a little step further and this institution of marriage given at the first week of creation, the oldest of all of God's revelations to man, God's design and God's laws designed to do other things, to, to regulate society. And we see it not just in the covenant people, but we see it in, in the incident where Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt and, and Sarah was in Pharaoh's harem. And, and for whatever reason, Pharaoh became aware that she was another man's wife. And, and so he didn't take her and he recognized that it would have been wrong to have done that. And the same thing applies with the case of um, Abraham and Sarah again, when they go down in Genesis chapter 20 to the Philistines and there Abimelech is warned by God in a dream not to touch Sarah, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. And Abraham as a prophet was told to pray for Abimelech, which, which he did. This arrangement ensures the continuation of the human race, and it also, as we've hinted already, shows God's ultimate plan for, for the earth. Now, there was a time, brothers and sisters, when British law was based pretty solidly on Judeo-Christian principles, and to an extent that, that is true today. But what we have witnessed is with almost lightning speed some of those principles are being eroded or extinguished altogether by wholesale changes and reforms introduced on the basis of giving equality to men and women of significantly different lifestyles. A few years ago we would go into maybe a register office in the United Kingdom and we would see this plaque on the wall, marriage according to the law of this country, is the union of one man with one woman voluntarily entered into for life to the exclusion of all others. Now it's no longer found. It had to be taken down because of the change in the law, because of the ignoring of God's principles in, in his word. And so you don't find it anymore. In fact, it's difficult to, to, to try to get a picture of it um, on, on, the, on the internet now. Um, and that's the situation that we're in. This is the world in which we live. This is the world in which we, we know. And this really, brethren and sisters, is, is one, and young people, is one of our, our challenges. But we find it's not just the world who are ignoring the principles of God, we find that around the fringes of our community that there are, there are things that are being considered. And, and, and this is something that we need to guard against. This is a challenge that we need to face. We need to resist. And I want to quote to you now a, a short um, section uh, from the Christadelphian written by Robert Roberts in 1880. It's quoted not to show Robert Roberts as an authority, as you shall see, it's based on 
on scripture, but it's a, a, a an interesting quotation. And it puts over, I think, the points that we want to make. Marriage is the earliest institution to be found in the Bible. The leaving of father and mother shows the formalness, openness, and publicity that have been essential to marriage from the very earliest. The principal element is the recognition of the community. The scriptures never contemplate the admissibility of intercourse till after marriage. Before then, it is fornication. Men and women are not husbands and wives till after marriage, whatever their intentions may be. Now, we wholeheartedly agree with that writing. We wholeheartedly agree with it because it is based on those scriptures. These are the scriptures that the brother Roberts quotes, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, which is not surprising, is it? We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 7 in a minute, and, and we'll look later at Ephesians 5.31, which we've read already. So there's just that quote in Genesis chapter 29. You needn't turn to it because it's a very short one, and I'll read it to you. It's concerning the time of Jacob. And he'd waited a whole seven years to marry Rachel. And in those seven years, he'd worked hard trying to look after and to improve Laban's flocks. And at the end of that period, he said in verse 21, and Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. And, and we know what happened, but the point I want to make here is that he'd waited a long time for this to happen. And he hadn't had any relationship with Rachel at all. And so we put that idea alongside what we read in Romans chapter 13, which says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves greater damnation. Now this presents us with a, a temporary challenge, doesn't it? Because men and women, young brothers and young sisters, in a time of difficulty and crisis and restrictions that are placed upon us, find that maybe their plans to get married are having to be put aside. And they have to wait. But what we're finding is that there are seen to be some situations where people look to bypass this arrangement. And it's a worrying trend because we don't know how long this crisis we're in, how long coronavirus is going to affect the world, how many more lockdowns we have to go into. But I put it to you that we can't really ignore those scriptures. We can't ignore what God has said. And we can't ignore the fact that the laws of the land, which in this instance agree entirely with what God has set out in his word, that we should not resist them. The Apostle Paul says, wherefore, therefore, whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And so it is a worrying trend. It is difficult for our young people who are contemplating marriage. But think of Jacob, who had to wait seven whole years for Rachel. 
And of course, as you know, he didn't get us to start off with. Let's look now at one of those scriptures that Brother Roberts um, set out, based his remarks on, and another one, which I think is, uh, if not um, uh, more, even more powerful. And the, the, the one is in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. It makes it absolutely clear that it is only through the process of marriage, which the writer says is honourable in all and the bed undefiled, by which they can come, a man and a woman can come together. And he says, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And that word whoremongers is the Greek word that I've got there, which is uh, pornos. And the idea behind that is unlawful sexual activity. And there it is again, a slightly different form, Poneas, in translated there in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2, which Brother Roberts used. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, to avoid immorality, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. This, this is God's design. This is God's institution. And we'll show later how this definition extends to between not just man and woman, but to same-sex activity also. It's, it's very clear. So coming together prior to marriage is, is sin. It's as simple as that. God sees that as fornication. And, and we can't really afford to deviate from that process, that divine institution. It creates confusion. It seems to be wrong as far as scripture is, is concerned. And so we need to tread very carefully in the days that are ahead until things, if they ever get back to normal, do get back to the situation that we, we had before. Let me just try and illustrate from some scriptures the importance of marriage being open. In the case of Isaac, when uh, Abraham's servant was sent north to go and get a wife for Isaac, he arrived home, and you may recognize the story in Genesis chapter 24, that Isaac was in the field meditating, and it was even. And, and, and Rebecca arrives, and it's significant that I think he puts her into his mother Sarah's tent. And I, you make of that what you will, but I read into that that it was too late in the day for anything to happen. Yes, everybody knew that a wife was coming from, from up north if the, if the servant of Abraham was successful in bringing someone back. Everybody knew that that would be the case and that this person would, would become Isaac's wife. But there wasn't the opportunity in the lateness of that day, in that even hour, for a marriage to take place. When Jacob, which we've referred to already, was in the situation with uh, Rachel and Leah. Laban explained, could have explained it to Jacob much earlier than this, but explained that he'd given Leah because they had a custom. So, so they had some kind of rules and some kind of um, procedures that they would apply. And the custom was, well, if I've got two daughters, I always have to give the older first. And if I've got three, I give the eldest first and so on and work my way down. In the case of the Philistines, even when Samson went down to Timnah to get a wife, 
there's a reference to the feast that took place before the marriage. The marriage was never consummated. And it says, so use the young men to do. This is something that Samson was complying with. And when the wager that was uh, made and the, the, the garments were given by Samson to the men who'd solved the riddle, that Samson went up to his father's house. He didn't leave his father's house. And so there was no marriage. When Boaz married Ruth, the elders were witnesses. It was a, it was a public thing. And the elders are involved, of course, in, in the, this is the, these are the authorities of the day involved for other reasons. Like can an explained discovery of a dead body or an accusation by a husband of a loss of virginity of someone that he's just married. So, so when we look at the scriptures, we, we see that there are these uh, pointers to the fact that, that a marriage is something which really has to be open and public. Now, we want to move away from, from that idea now and just to think about the world in which we live and the way in which man has behaved. And you know, man, unaffected by the word of God, unrestrained from its teaching, can be very, very arrogant. There's, there's no doubt that unregenerated flesh is full of wickedness. There's no doubt at all. And, and this wickedness is seen in what has happened in recent years in the sin of, of redefining marriage. It can't be redefined by man because it's something that God has set out. He's the only one that can, that can change that. And he's decided not to change it. Not to change it because he has an eternal purpose. And, and this eternal purpose is bound up in, in the marriage. But this is what man has sought to do in, in many countries of the Western world. It began, of course, with the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1967 and civil partnerships in 2005, but that wasn't good enough. The boundaries needed to be pushed further and further so that in 2014 we had the first same-sex marriages, so-called, in, in England and Wales. The speed with which this has happened is quite amazing. And I don't think that we, as Christadelphians, if we go back maybe 20 years, would have thought that it would come to this. Now, we want to establish what God thinks about homosexual activity to make it very clear. And, and we have to do this because this is being challenged now. The world is one thing, but this is being challenged within the certain small sections of the brotherhood. So we need to be clear about it. If we're going to face the challenge of, of this in the future, we need to be clear about our scriptures. We need to be absolutely certain about how God views acts outside of marriage. And in particular, as we're moving on to look at between men and men and between women and women. Now, in the law of Moses, there are clear references to um, these activities, which the children of Israel were told 
not to get involved with. And I would like to just turn to one chapter, and it's in the book of Leviticus in chapter 18. And I'd like to look at one verse. And this one verse is, I think, one of the key verses in, in Leviticus. Um, it's a book about, all about holiness, but also it tells us something about what Israel was to face. And so in Leviticus chapter 18, at the beginning of a section of Leviticus, where all sorts of abominable practices are going to be mentioned, and Israel is going to be warned against performing them, this is what we read in Leviticus 18 and verse 3. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein you dwelt, you shall not do. So they come out from Egypt. They were now in the wilderness. The tabernacle had been made and consecrated. They were now listening to the law. It was the first month in the second year. And it wouldn't be long before they would move on on a journey which should have taken just 11 days from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. But it took an awful lot longer than that. So after the doings of the land of Egypt, when he dwelt, he shall not do. And there were all sorts of things happening in Egypt. And they were brought out from that. But they were going to go into a place which was even worse. And how do I know that it was even worse? Well, you have to simply base it on the acts of the Almighty. The land of Egypt was devastated because Pharaoh would not let the children go. He wasted the land of Egypt. Many Egyptians were killed. But they were going to go into a land where there were all sorts of abominable practices taking place. And that these abominable practices would mean that God said, wipe them out. All of them. Don't let anyone survive. And so it seems very clear to me that they were going to go into this land and they were going to see worse things. And so Leviticus is warning them about it so they don't get caught up in it. And that's what all these chapters are about in, in the next few chapters in Leviticus. So let's just quickly look at these. In Romans chapter 1, we see what God thinks of it in the writing of Paul to the Romans, where he says in verse 26, um, for Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women and uh, even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. And so that's abundantly clear, isn't it? What God views, what, how God views homosexual acts. And in fact, in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness and fornication, that's that word pornier again, which covers all of these things. And we can prove it from, from Jude. And then we go to Paul's writing to the Corinthians. And in the first letter, and chapter 6, and there he says, along with a, a list of all, um, a whole list of, of, of sins, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, so here we got the, the, the word again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, and so on. 
the interesting thing is when we read verse 11, and such were some of you. So although they were in that position, although they were in that level of depravity, God said that they could come out from it. And they did come out from it, many of them. Paul was told I ha that God had given him much people in the city. And so they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then again, there's another reference in Timothy, which for time we won't go to. But I'd like to go to the one in Jude, because we're going to spend a few minutes in looking at the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what Jude does in the seventh verse of his letter. And in, in that seventh verse, he talks about the judgments that God had brought in the past upon various nations and circumstances. And he says in verse seven, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to immorality, fornication, ekponier is the, is the word, and going after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, so we're left in absolutely no doubt, are we, as to what God thinks about other sorts of activity outside of the marriage arrangement that he set out way back on day six of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So let's now just look a little bit more about this sin of Sodom and what happened, because I think this just shows us the enormity of the situation that God faced and acted upon. So here's a timeline. Abraham, age 75, he enters Canaan. At 86, Ishmael is born. He's 100 when Isaac is born. And we suggest about 105 when Isaac is weaned. So what happened? He comes into Canaan. And sometime before Ishmael is born, so within that 11-year period, he's arrived in Canaan. He's gone from Shechem to Bethel. He's with Lot. They've gone down into Egypt. And they've come out from Egypt. And then there's the incident where Lot's herdsmen, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen um, quarrel and it's decided that they separate. And then um, Abraham is given more promises. But in Genesis chapter 15, he's given this promise. So perhaps we could just turn to Genesis chapter 15 because it's really relevant to this judgment that came upon Sodom. And this is what Abraham was told in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 15, that his seed would be a stranger in a land that was not theirs, and they shall evil afflict them 400 years. So there's a there's a 400-year period of affliction which is spoken about. And then in verse 16, linked with that, there is the promise that after going into a land whereby they would become um, slaves... That nation would be judged. They would come out with great substance. And then in verse 16, it says, in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. I'm not going to do it now because, God says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So all the nations which are identified in verses 18, 19 and 21, all those nations, there are 10 nations listed there. God considered, yes, they might be wicked, but at the moment... Their wickedness has not reached a peak. It has not peaked. It has not reached a crescendo whereby God considers that they should be judged. There's 400 years or more to go before that happens. 
and Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim were of those nations that are mentioned there. So they would not be ready for judgment for another 400 years or so. But God judged them much, much earlier. And it was because of their great sin and great wickedness, which we know what it was. The 400 years starts probably from the time that Ishmael persecutes Isaac. That's what we're told in Galatians. Him who was born of the flesh persecuted him who was the child of promise. And Ishmael mocked Isaac and, and he was told with Hagar to go. Abraham divorced Hagar. So God brought forward the judgment of, of those places, the cities of the plain, because of their great sin. Now, you just wonder what is going to happen in this world when this practice is spreading and spreading and spreading. What is going to happen in the future? Now, when we look at scriptures about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, we find all these things. I'm not going to go through those in, in detail, but you can find out what God says about Sodom. And, and there, there they, they are. They're all there. Um, and then outside of Genesis, we read these things. The sin is a Sodom, wickedness of Sodom, the sin of Sodom, and so on. Now, we're going to come back to a couple of these um, a little bit later on. But you can see can't you, that that's quite an impressive list, isn't it, in, in, in one sense, that, that God has chosen to tell us all of that, given us all of that information. We really seem to be, don't we, in days which are like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and therefore, as that judgment came upon them swiftly, it may not be very long before the Lord Jesus Christ returns in that day which God has appointed for him to judge the earth in righteousness. And we look and we long for that time to come because it's our release from all of these things. So in Genesis chapter 19, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about, both old and young, people from every quarter. Now that's also interesting, isn't it? This was widespread in, in this place. And, and this is what we're finding in, in our own world. Things are not under wraps anymore, are they? And this is what they said to Lot. Bring them out to us that we may know them. And this brave man, Lot, who was quite old at this time, goes outside his house, shuts the door behind him to protect the men who he didn't know were angels from their vile practices. An amazing feat of bravery that I don't know if many of us would be able to match. And then they resorted to violence and the angels rescued Lot. When we look at some of these other scriptures, we find that in Isaiah 3 verse 9, in speaking of the sin of Israel, God says, well, they're quite open about it now. They declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. And isn't this, this what we are finding in our, in our world? It's now open. It's not underground anymore it is open it is in your face and this is the world in which we live and ezekiel said that this was the iniquity of thy sister sodom pride and what do we find 
we find that pride marches in all the cities of the world, even in Jerusalem. And God says through the prophet Ezekiel, they were haughty and committed abomination before me. And we've already looked at Romans um, chapter one. So what we've got to do, brothers and sisters, is to think about responding to the challenges. Because there are challenges. And we're going to now look at some of the arguments that are uh, that emanate from certain sections of the brotherhood. Justifying. The behaviour of those whom God said were abundantly wicked. So these are some of the things we said, and, and we'll provide some answers as to how we might deal with them. First thing is the BASF does not prohibit homosexual relationships, and so it is argued that we should not impose this as a matter of fellowship. Well, the BASF is made up of a foundation clause and 30 other clauses which set out the doctrines that we need to believe. There are then 35 statements setting out the doctrines to be rejected, which can be matched against those positive clauses. They don't argue against them. They don't militate against them. They make it clearer. And then there are 53 commandments of Christ. But the commandments of Christ are much, much more than 53. And there's a little booklet that, that you can get, which gives many more commandments of Christ. And Jesus says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. There, there's plenty of scriptures that we've seen already, which shows us that this is not an acceptable situation in the eyes of God. And Paul says, the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So let's don't get caught with that one. It doesn't need to be in the BASF in order to say that it's wrong. Some people come and say, well, there are strong homosexual tendencies. They're so entrenched in individuals. So if we try to stop people from this activity. It's imposing such a burden on them, which is too great to bear. Now, this is a dangerous reasoning, isn't it? Because it's basically saying, well, you can sin however you want to. If you've got this strong tendency to, to, to sin, you may not have a homosexual tendency, but you may have a, a craving for the opposite sex. And, and, and that is wrong. And that has to be controlled. And it's difficult controlling it. But it's something that has to be controlled. Someone might have a problem with alcohol. Someone might have a problem with stealing. It's all sorts of difficulties that we face. All sorts of sins. Nothing can be excused. And so we cannot accept that argument as a valid argument. Same as this one. He that is able to receive being a unit, let him receive it. The implication is, well, if you can't receive it, then perhaps it's okay to indulge. That's the same kind of thing, isn't it? If we understand this passage, whatever it might mean, as allowing freedom for disciples to engage in homosexual practices, it's blatantly flying in the face of God's commandments. This is one that is brought up sometimes because of the wonderful relationship that David and Jonathan had. It is assumed wrongly that they were in some kind of 
homosexual behavior. And it's because of what David said in the lament that the love, our love was passing the love of women. So is there a way of, of explaining that? Very, very simply, I think, that Jonathan and David were at one in, in mind and purpose in defeating God's en enemies, the Philistines, and ensuring that David would survive the, um, from, from being killed by Saul, that he might then occupy the throne. And it was Jonathan's desire that he would be next to him on the throne. And this reference to passing the love of women may well relate to a situation whereby when Michal, David's wife, who, who loved him and, and looked after him and pretended he was sick and then had to face her father and told her father that David had threatened her life. Now, that didn't do David any good at all. And she no doubt feared her father greatly. But when Solomon, uh, sorry, when Jonathan uh, had to face his father over his protection of David, he didn't lie. He told his father exactly what he thought. And it may be that this way, Jonathan surpassed the love of Michal. People say passages disproving the same-sex same acts are connected with idol worship. Therefore, um, we are not, they, these are not addressing loving, voluntary agreement of two members of the same sex living together. Well, we can't accept that, can we? There are passages that link idolatry and homosexuality and other forms of bad behaviour. But it's incorrect to limit the prohibition to this circumstance only. God makes it absolutely clear, and we're going to repeat there what we said about Sodom's judgments being brought forward. Now, this next one has a real context, and the context comes on the next slide. But I want to just explain it first of all. And it is, if God calls someone who is homosexual, who are we to refuse them? The argument goes, well, God has um, looked and chosen someone who may be in a homosexual relationship and introduced the gospel to them. So, so therefore, it's OK, because God knew that that was their situation. Well, first of all, uh, the answer to this is it's a wrong understanding of calling. Now, it's very clear. Let's, let's look at the two in Thessalonians very quickly because it makes it very clear as to how God calls people. So in the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, and at chapter 2, and at verse 12, he exhorts the Thess Thessalonians, Paul exhorts them, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. And how did they get called? Well, the next verse tells you. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because... When ye received the word which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's exactly what Jesus said in his prayer. The disciples had heard his words and believed. He prayed that others would receive the words of the disciples, hear them and accept them and believe also. And then in the second letter and at chapter two and at verse 14. Paul says, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was the gospel that called, the preaching of the gospel. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach without someone being sent? And so God was sending. That's why God said to the disciples, they were to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And Paul, in writing to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 23, said that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. Now, look at this. And if you're not surprised about this, I'll be surprised. In 2015, the Military Service Committee sent out some advice to Ecclesias. Looking ahead to the fact that the Ecclesias could face trouble from activists or even maybe genuine cases that they needed to, to consider in the future, for members whose lifestyle was not in accordance with the commandments of God, that what could they do about it? And the recommendation was to put something in your constitution now, get it in there now. And this was the wording. We will refuse membership to any whose circumstances cause serious offence to the strongly held beliefs of a significant number of the members of the Ecclesia. Some people said, well, actually, that's not the reason why I would have it in the Constitution. I'd have a different reason. But this was chosen carefully because it was the wording that would be acceptable when a test in the Equality Act might be brought against an Ecclesia. Currently, this statement is within the law. One of the responses received to the sending out of this advice was this. Generally speaking, when dealing with very difficult issues, we have had to look at cases on an individual basis. And for this, we need to have full understanding of both the affirmative and the non-affirmative arguments. Recognise that we are dealing with people we love whose lives are very different. Recognise the fundamental principles of loving our neighbours as ourselves and prepare ourselves for the day when a same-sex couple married for many years with two or three children seeks to answer the call of grace. Uh, and this is why I said that that last situation has a real context. It was from a Christadelphian quotes. That's surprising. That's very surprising to me. And that was sent uh, to us in 2015. So how do we feel, brothers and sisters, about this Western world that we're, we're living in, in these last days, that allows and promotes in a proud way that which it calls diversity, but what God calls sin? Like Lot, what we should be doing is vexing our righteous souls from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And thankfully, although this situation may get worse, it will eventually be removed from the earth. And it will be removed from the earth because God has this plan. So let's go to our reading now from Ephesians chapter 5. And let's just think a little bit about what God has said here in Ephesians chapter 5 as we start to draw our remarks to, to a, a conclusion. And now we're going to look at things which are much more positive. And as we look at these verses, the responsibilities of wives, 
and the responsibilities of husbands. And I always like to, to highlight here that the responsibility on the husband is greater than the responsibility on the wife because the husband is representing Christ and Christ gave his life for his bride. And that's what husbands should be trying to do. And I'm not trying to pretend that any of what I've been saying is easy. It's not easy, but it's what we have to try to do. And so husbands, in verse 25, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the ecclesia and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Look at the Leviticus language that's in here. Washing, cleansing, that he might present it to himself, a glorious ecclesia, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, in Leviticus language, but it should be holy, Leviticus language, and without blemish, Leviticus language. It's all there, isn't it? So in the law, and the Levit book of Leviticus that we're reading now, we can get great lessons from there about how we really should try to be in the eyes of the Almighty, without spot, without blemish. We should wash ourselves with the word of God, that we might be able to present ourselves in that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. That's taking us right back to Genesis, day six of the creation week. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. And then if we didn't know, the Apostle Paul tells us that this is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the Ecclesia. So, brothers and sisters, as we wait however many days, we still have to wait until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. As we have to try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before God, we must be aware of all of these challenges that are for us to contend with. We must be clear about what scripture says. We must not put anything above it and everything will be subservient to it. So that we'll get to a state when in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ has returned the Gogin host has been defeated on the mountains of Israel and the everlasting gospel is preached and it will say to all that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, this is the everlasting gospel, this is what people will have to do, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and they will have to worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The creator of the heavens and the earth, and the book of Genesis tells us, was completed in six days. And on the Sabbath day, he rested and was refreshed. And this will usher in the Sabbath now. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's a verse that's been quoted already from Jeremiah chapter 16, but... It's that quote where the Gentiles will say, surely our fathers have inherited lies and vanity and things wherein there's no profit. And it's significant that 
that that generation will say it was our fathers <laughs> that inherited the lies. We, we followed on. Yes, we have. But they brought it up. And it has been around for some time, hasn't it? The idea that there is no creator of the heavens and the earth. Our fathers have inherited lies and vanity in things wherein there is no profit. And so we'll arrive at the time when we hope, my beloved brethren and sisters, we will be part of great rejoicing. Because now this weekend has highlighted a lot of sadness, maybe a lot of shocks, maybe a lot of disharmony. But there is a time coming when things will change. And so finally, in the book of Revelation and chapter 19, we read, hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise Yah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth in Revelation 19 and verse 6. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Finally, that promise that was made all those years ago in Genesis will, will now be a real reality in the earth. His wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And so we will have bodies, my dear brothers and sisters, will no longer struggle with all the problems that we now face all the difficulties all the sin which doth so easily beset us that struggle will be put to one side and we will be free from sin and you know what this marriage will be the most public marriage that the world has ever witnessed christ and his glorious bride thank you